Hey, Mike, where's home for you if you travel a lot? Uh, I live in. I'm actually originally from South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, um, but I've been living in Chattanooga for about uh, 16, 17 years now. Okay, good. Did you where, did you get up to? Is it Tullahoma for that fly-in recently? Um, the AOPA one, not not recently. I did it about two years ago. I went there. Yeah, I think uh, I, I volunteered at one of those when they first came out. I think those things are just are neat. Yeah, that was. I, I think it was one of the first ones. It was about two or three years ago. They only had a yeah, few. You might have been at the first one there. Mike. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and I didn't know anybody there besides Paul Harrop. <laughs> oh no, kid. Um, you know him. Uh, just through Facebook and I, and that's about it. I've never met him, but he sounds like a, I know he just got his pilot's license. So that's pretty cool. He's, He's the a nicest class guy in the world. act. I love everything about Paul Harrop. Yeah. I, I really enjoy, you know, so when I watch AOP live or whatever it is, I, I just, his story, he's just a great storyteller. He is. I mean, it's just, I mean, he should write a book or do a, you know, a long, a long podcast or something like that, or do something bigger for AOP. He's, I just, I just captivated by the way, way he tells stories. AOPA yeah. flyby, I think, is really his baby, and I think he kind of created that. So, yeah, he's he's got some good stuff. Uh, anytime I'm at an aviation event, I hope to cross paths with him. Welcome to Logbook Memories, an aviation podcast about remembering and sharing our past flights. I'm David Allen, a student pilot. And I'm Michael Ladd, a private pilot. Guests on Logbook Memories look back through their pilot logbook to find a particularly interesting, adventurous, enjoyable, scary, or otherwise memorable flight. Then they come on here and share the story of that flight in their own words. Our next guest is ready to go, so let's mic him up. Our guest this week is Tom Dorrell. He's a colonel, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, he says to us that 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 was a previous life, and he's he's done with that. But I don't want to, I don't I don't want to gloss over that. He spent 25 years in the United States Air Force uh, as a pilot, and now he is retired and has a new side hustle and one of a couple of side hustles. One of those is he's an instructor for airplanes and helicopters. Uh, Tom, welcome to Logbook Memories. Hey guys, thanks for having me on, and uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, as we as we were talking earlier the healthy addiction of flying. And David, as you said, if if we're not flying, we're we're talking about flying. So happy to uh, happy to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. We do love talking about it, um, Tom. You've you've had quite uh, quite the aviation career, some three thousand six hundred hours uh, of flying time already. Um, and I just want to start by saying, um, this is, this, this, this episode's going to air in, you know, sometime after we record it, but we are actually recording this on the evening of Veterans Day in 2019. And so just from, uh, from me and from Mike's behalf and everybody in the audience, thank you so much for your service to this country. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it very much. You know what I think is interesting is uh, every time – I may or may not even leave this in the recording. I may take it out. Whenever you tell someone who's in the service or retired from the service, whenever you say thank you, their response is always thank you. <laughs> <laughs> not you're welcome. <laughs> and I think that just shows the humility that you guys have. And I, it just – it means a lot. It's something I've always noticed. Yeah, you know that that's very perceptive because um, you know we uh, yeah heard that uh, and it 
it's hard to encapsulate and and when people talk about you because we don't you know we a lot of people do it for different reasons um and and it's more like us thanking them because we get the opportunity to to serve them and really defend that opportunity in this great country uh of ours to to go and do that and this is just one of the days that we stop and take pause uh for the veterans and the families too because um you know, Absolutely. There's a whole support network that, that sometimes doesn't even get talked about or seen uh, as the uh, as the, uh, the the spouse, uh, no matter who it is, goes off to combat or sails out to sea or on a training or an exercise. So I appreciate you guys saying that. Well, and thank you for bringing up the families, too, because I think that gets overlooked, like you said, so often is it's not just the service member, but it's their families, it's their kids, it's the parents. Um, and so, it, you know, I always say whoever is involved at any level, thank you for your service for you and your family. So, well, cool. So you are a, a helicopter pilot. Uh, and actually what I love is you're an, uh, air force combat rescue pilot. That was what you spent your career doing. Um, let's maybe just kind of learn a little bit about you for a moment, if that's okay. Um, how did you get started? Like where did this, did this passion for aviation start at a young age or was this something that kind of developed as you got older? Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'm sitting in my office and I've, I've got, uh, you know, some mementos of flying and I, and I recently found some stuff from my dad and then found some pictures and I, I'm looking at a picture from me in 1987. Uh, so that was a long time ago. I'm not going to do public math. Um, but uh, it says last flight of the summer of 1987. And in the short story was my dad was in the um, enlisted in the Navy and I uncovered some things that, that he did, which was, you know, he graduated high school in 40, June 44, enlisted in the Navy in September 44. So you can imagine what was going on in the world during that time, um, which I thought I had known when I was younger, but, but not really, but reminded um, he wanted me to be a doctor and I said, dad, it sounds like a lot of work. Um, and a lot of college. <laughs> it's a lot of schooling. <laughs> it's a lot of schooling. Um, and, um, uh, and then I wanted to study birds and be an ornithologist and some really weird things like that. But, um, but really I'd say that the, um, probably the, the most indelible mark on my memory was we went, we took a space available flight. So that's where military families and members can fly on cargo airplanes you can go all over the world. Frankly, uh, we flew from somewhere on the East coast. I think it might've been Charleston, South Carolina, we went down to, um, Antigua and then over to the Virgin islands. And he, uh, he introduced me to one of his friends from his days in the service when he was in the air force. Um, and in this, this, gentlemen, I think he was an Air Force pilot, if I remember correctly. Anyway, we flew from, I think, St. Thomas to St. John's, and we basically island hopped for a couple hours. And uh, so that was my first exposure uh, into into flying. And I was like, well, this is pretty cool, flying in the Caribbean. You know, this is, this is things are looking good. And I was maybe 15 uh, years old at the time. Uh, and then, I, you know, we get back to the States, and my dad was a reservist, and I grew up in, uh, in Northeast New Jersey, and he would um, – go to his drill weekends at McGuire, which is in the center part of the state, Pine Barrens area. Um, and he would literally drop me off at the aero club, uh, when, and, and sometimes they still have aero clubs. The one, uh, at this air force base is, is gone. 
But he would drop me off there, and back then I think it was $35 an hour wet for a 152. Um, and I would, you know, get all my money from mowing lawns or delivering papers or shoveling driveways or whatever it was, and I would, you know, throw my nickels and dimes and quarters on the table and go fly. But then I quickly realized flying uh, back then as it is now, it's, uh, it, takes, it takes money to turn that prop. So kind of did some fits and starts. Um, and the, the other part of the story is we weren't entirely honest with my mom uh, at the time. Because <laughs> she, she's like, you know, she would tell my dad going, you know, he's, he just, he's, he'll be fine. Just put him in a corner. He'll be fine. And my dad's like, you know, go fly and figure it out. Because going through some of my dad's stuff after he died many years ago, I found his logbook, you know, Piper Cubs, 1946. You know, he'd done some seaplane stuff, and I had known that. But once you see it, and you see the logbook from the mid '40s, after the you know after the war had ended, flying in places that I flew in, in um, in the Panhandle, of Florida, and in Lower Alabama. So that was kind of a neat connective uh, moment. But kind of discovered that med school I wasn't really cut out for that. Uh, frankly, didn't have the grades, but really fell in love with aviation, and I would you know take my parents' car in the middle of the night, you know, or, or at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, drive to the airport and just watch airplanes take off. So I lived a little bit, uh, about a half hour away from Newark International in that part of the, uh, of New Jersey and just would watch airplanes. Went to college, uh, out in, uh, Ohio, did an aviation, did ROTC there and was lucky enough to get a, uh, pilot slot to go to, uh, Air Force pilot training. Went to pilot training out in Oklahoma, uh, we had our, in, in a little, little side story, we had our first reunion in over 26 years. So, uh, that was really neat to see everybody kind of come back together. Most people. And then, uh, you know, like most things in training, it's a meritocracy. So, you know, the number one guy picks and the number 10 guy picks. And at that time they were banking a lot of pilots, uh, because the, you know, the, the war in Iraq had, had ended and, um, there was a big, drawdown and, and things in the military sometimes go in cycles. Sometimes they need pilots. Sometimes they don't need pilots. This is when they didn't need pilots. So there were, they were banking pilots. And that's a fancy word for you're not going to fly a lot until we kind of get the absorption and the production rates figured out. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So uh, I'll try this helicopter thing. And uh, I got a lot of counseling at the time because the Air Force didn't really fly. I'm air quoting out fly helicopters are more for the army. And I was told I, I would never make it past captain. So I said, well, you know, it sounds like fun. And uh, it was to Iceland. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, and then we'll come back to that story in a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, so graduated pilot training and I went to go learn how to fly helicopters with the Army. And so I spent two years in, uh, in, in a pilot training environment before I got to my first operational unit. And the, the short story is I, I didn't make it to Iceland on my first assignment. I actually wound up uh, in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And, and then that's right in my backyard yeah oh okay and that's where i met my wife were you at were you at patrick i was at patrick yeah Are you from yeah. uh what part of what part of the area i live in i live in palm bay oh yeah oh my gosh my one of my sister's-in-law and my mother-in-law used to live there so yeah uh very familiar yeah, i've lived here all my life when i was in civil air patrol for about a dozen years my squadron was at patrick air force base oh yeah yeah, so we were the active duty rescue guys at Patrick. I've flown with them, the nine twentieth. Yeah, well, that's the reserve guys. We were we were active there, and we moved up to Moody up in uh, into Georgia uh, back in nineteen ninety six or ninety seven. I don't remember. Okay, so were you flying? Were you flying with them when they had um, the, the, 
this is going to go turn on the Wayback Machine. The first time I flew with the rescue guys at Patrick as part of the Civil Air Patrol, we flew in a H3 Jelly Green Giant. Correct. Uh, nope, don't have any time in that. I was uh, in the active you were, duty. You were all Pavehawks in yes. the 60s? Yep, I was one of the first Pavehawks to show up to Patrick, you bet. Right on. Okay. Yep. I was there when they when they made that transition. No kidding. Yeah. Have a lot of good friends um, that flew the H3 then transitioned over. Um, yeah. But first assignment flying on the beaches in Florida was, was great as a young lieutenant. Doesn't suck. It does not suck. <laughs> it does not. I'm sure. Uh, met my wife there. She's uh, in the corner listening. So her dad was Air Force as well. So um, and then they moved out of uh, Maryland down to down to uh, down to Florida where we met. So so is your wife a Florida native? Honey, are you a Florida native? She, no, she grew up. She was born in Andrews. So here's a cool story about her. She's got a bunch of sisters, um, and each was born in a different Air Force base. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But then after Patrick, we went all over the place um, and did, did a bunch of fun flying and all that stuff. So. so so you went through pilot training and then didn't get a pilot slot. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you flew the T-30. I'm guessing you flew the T-37 and then upgraded to a T-38 or did they stop you there? No, I, I actually uh, yeah, I did exactly that. I did all the fixed wing UPT because back then they did not track people. Now they track them fighters tankers, transports, helicopters. So Right. So if you're not going to fighters, you're never going to see the T-38. That's right. So I kind of consider myself very fortunate that I did all the Air Force fixed wings. So I flew uh, T-37s, T-38s, got about 200 hours total, about 100 hours in each of those. And then I went to fly Hueys with the Army. Um, and then I moved to Albuquerque where I learned to fly the, uh, the Pavehawk. So I spent almost two years in, in a formal pilot training environment. So I'm, I'm sorry, I have to interject here. So what is this? What the the H three you called it? Yeah, it's the H three Jolly Green Giant. It was the old. Um, okay, that's the old Sikorsky, isn't it? Uh, sure. I don't know who makes it. Actually, I believe you. I, yeah, believe, I believe it is Sikorsky. Yeah, that's the old one. Yep, that was yeah. a Vietnam yeah. era helicopter. Okay. Yep. And theoretically, I I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't want to, but theoretically, that thing can actually land on the water and float. Is that was that a true statement? That is absolutely true. Actually, I, I've never flown it and I've never seen it, but a friend of mine tells me it has a bilge pump. <laughs> huh. I would hope well, so. Well, I guess that would make sense uh, if it's designed to yeah. at least float a little bit. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what they did is they were there for the uh, space shuttle uh, support and rescue mission. Yep, and that's what the, the Blackhawks are there for, or Pavehawks now. That's what they're there for, too. They they do the, uh, though they did the space shuttle support, so... Um, when the when the shuttle program was going, those things would would take off. In fact, they also have here at Patrick they have C one thirties for the same purpose. Yep. Um, so yeah, they would they were there for U.S. Uh, or Air Force Space Command, forty uh, fifth Space Wing. Yep. They uh, yep. They're a reserve unit. Uh, have a have a handful of friends in that organization, and they they do great work. And they they still deploy and go to combat and do great things. Yes, they do. I've I'm, I've seen them go out, out on assignment a number of times. So cool. yeah, cool. yep. Well, good. I think that gives us a good background. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, awesome stuff. Um, and uh, if you ever co- if you ever come back through down to Patrick again, um, you know, make sure you look me up. I'll I'll buy the beers. We got places down here for that. So really, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> we actually do. They're pretty tasty. Come on, Mike. Let's go. I haven't. I, I, he, he no, that, by the way, that, that, that offer is not for you, Mike. 
<laughs> hey, is Conky Joe's still open? Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, you gotta be got kidding me. Holy crap. I, I think so. I, I need to look it up. There's a lot of good restaurants around. So. Yeah. Um, That's funny. One of my favorites is Coasters. So they got they have burgers there that'll just blow, I actually blow your mind. read a news headline uh, while we were talking before you jumped on, Tom. I was telling Dave about a one of those fake news stories from like The Onion or something. I forget what it was called about how uh, Applebee's declared bankruptcy this evening after allowing uh, free alcohol for Veterans Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that probably sounds about right. That's a great story for The Onion. And I'm sure it'll be on the Babylon Bee next. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So tell us, uh, tell us a story or two about your flying. Um, b- and by the way, you're also now that you're retired, you are an instructor in uh, mostly single engine pistons, so Cessnas, Pipers, uh, you know, Sky- Skyhawks and Warriors and things like that. Um, but we would love to hear a story or two about you know some of the stuff that you did uh, during your career or uh, after. Yeah. Uh, so I'll I'll kind of. Keep it all unclassified, of course, since I'm no longer in that in that world. But um, you know, I'll, I'll give you one. So here's one from from Iceland. We uh, actually wound up there on my second operational assignment. So the Air Force uh, actually there was a Navy base, uh, Naval Air Station Keflavik was up there, and uh, there was a small squadron up there. They have since moved to another location. They're on a continent of Europe somewhere. I think they might be in Italy by now. But uh, we were there mainly to to pull search and rescue for some of the fighters that were up there doing some of their uh, North Atlantic patrols. And then, uh, of course, offer assistance to the uh, Icelandic partners that were hosting us. So that was uh, that was a great opportunity. And as a young pilot, squadron was small, four or five helicopters uh, that we would have. And we would go out in, frankly, some weather that I never even thought an aircraft or a helicopter could fly in. And we had a saying back then when the weather was bad, that was what we would call air quote mission weather, because sometimes the fishing boats, you know, seas would get really rough. Uh, the winds would kick up. We would get these crazy winter storms with wind and snow and ice. So there was great opportunities to become uh, and perfect your skills as a, you know, stick and rudder pilot, because uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, autopilot on the uh, on the HH60G back then. There's a little bit more now, um, but uh, but still not as much as you know a three-axis autopilot that some of the other helicopters and fixed-wing uh, platforms enjoy today. So you know one of the one of the stories that kind of jumps out at me is you know we usually fly at night because that's what we like to practice too. We we have you know night vision goggles. We have forward-looking infrared on the helicopter. I don't know if we had it on this particular flight or sortie, uh, but we're just doing pattern. We're we're basically practicing landing in a in a remote landing zone. Our our wingman uh, they were off doing something, uh, you know, a couple miles away, and uh, you know the weather was. I don't remember the exact uh, weather. It might have been a thousand feet in three miles, which not a lot of fun. The benefit about a helicopter uh, is you can always stop and you you can land pretty much wherever you want. And some, sometimes we had to uh, in this helicopter. So, we, you know, uh, I was a young instructor back then. And uh, so I was I had a crew with me and we we're just practicing, you know, doing uh, doing tactical approaches. So that's kind of uh, a, sh- a short explanation to kind of get in and get out as fast as possible. 
uh, and recover the team or drop the team off or pick up the survivor. Well, um, can you describe that a little bit? Like what's a, a standard approach versus tactical approach? I mean, it's obviously it's something much more yeah, so, uh, aggressive. So for the helicopter, for the, for the one that I was flying, we were probably flying racetrack type patterns. So nothing s- somewhat similar to a, a normal base final downwind, but instead of squaring our patterns, everything would look like a big oval racetrack. We would probably uh, take off, climb to about a hundred feet on the downwind and then start our base to final approach. Probably, you know, a short approach would be about a quarter to a half mile final. A long approach would have been maybe a 0.8. And it, and it also depended on, um, the type of landing zone that we were going to. If there was a lot of snow, we might slow it down a little bit because you get into what's called a whiteout condition, which is very difficult to see any kind of ground references. But we would have, you know, two pilots up front, and then we would have um, a uh, aerial gunner and a flight engineer sitting in the back of the aircraft, and they would be our. They would scan and they would make sure that we wouldn't hit anything and that we were clear down. Those, uh, they've changed those career field names are called now special mission aviators, but the duties are, are largely the same. And so the tactical approach is a little bit more faster and a little bit more tighter and smaller than a, uh, a normal, uh, approach. So you could probably say that the tackle approach is uh, probably a half mile final, which doesn't sound a lot, but it's a lot when you're doing about 120 knots at a hundred feet. Wow. That's fast. So that's kind of the geometry, uh, picture that I'll, I'll present to you. Uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, that's I, that's pretty radical that yes. you're coming in at 120 knots. Yeah, um, and and that was probably on the fast side. And then what we would do is we would get you know sight of the landing zone, and we wouldn't auto rotate, but we would you know we would use basically the the nose pitch attitude and bring the nose up to kind of get it uh, into the airstream and slow down the aircraft. So we got our nose up, we're kind of exposed, and we would basically slow down this aircraft. And the tail, we you know, it's a tailwheel type uh, helicopter, so the tail would hit first, and then the uh, the mains would go down. And then we would practice, you know, offloading our team, uh, and we would carry pararescue men or PJs. Uh, so these were young men that were highly trained in small team tactics, weapons, medical. Uh, and they would treat and package the patient that we were practicing recovering, put him or her back on the aircraft and then, and then take back off. So we were just practicing those, you know, it was nighttime. So we've got our MVGs on and it's dark and it's probably blowing 30 or 40 knots, which was, you know, I'd say that's, that's probably an average night in Iceland. Uh, and when you're, when you're a young captain with a young crew, you learn, uh, you learn risk management very, very quickly, you know, and in the, in the static environment, you can understand you know, aeronautical decision-making, very similar to what the FAA uh, uses today, crew resource management, operational risk management, all that stuff. So we're doing a bunch of approaches. I let my co-pilot fly it and he takes, uh, you know, they're doing their approaches and I come inside the aircraft. I forget which seat I was in. I think I was in the, in the right seat and the aircraft commander in the helicopter sits in the right seat um, for a number of different reasons, but we'll get to that maybe later. So I come in inside, I'm doing something on our, our nav system or our flight management system, punching in a coordinate or whatever. And we're mind, now remember, we're, we're probably 100 feet to 200 feet off the ground. And I look up and all I see is basically this green glob of, of cloud. And we're 100 feet and, or 100, 200 feet and we're in the cloud. And I'm like, hey, you know, let's just call him Joe. I don't remember who it was. Hey, Joe, so uh, why are we in the clouds? He goes, well, that's where I flew. 
and, I, and I'm like, you know, and we're having this conversation. Now, meanwhile, we're, we're down where we're probably 100 to 200 feet, maybe 100 knots. There's not too much terrain around us, but maybe a mile or so away. And I said, so um, why are we in the clouds at 100 feet doing, you know, 80, 100 knots? He goes, well, that's where the airplane, that's where the helicopter went. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. And I'm like, you know, but and we're not having this conversation as slowly as we, as we unpack right. this story now. And and part of my brain's like, I, I can't believe this has actually happened. Why are we in the weather? It's <laughs> dude, no, this is a this is a visual flavor maneuver. And, and I'm like, okay. And he's just flying along like we're in the clouds and nothing's bothering him. And and because he was a younger pilot, he probably wasn't scared enough to be scared, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. tracking. Yeah. And I'm like, holy cats, how are we going to get out of this thing? And now the guys in the back, they know what's going on because they're very experienced, uh, you know, aviators. And they're like, um, you know, sir, you got to you know, take the controls. You know, he was a lieutenant. Like, they're like, Captain so-and-so, take the controls right now. And I'm like, I have a feeling this conversation was a lot more colorful. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it, it was. There was. There might have been some very perceptive, Mike. Um, it was some yelling and screaming, and you know, some name calling. And so you try and stay calm as the aircraft commander or even the instructor. I'm like, hey, so why don't we just turn, you know, right heading one five zero? Let's go out over the water because uh, that's where it's safe, right? Because we have a radar altimeter. We know we'll know we'll get a uh, kind of a flat reference versus a rolling terrain. Because uh, I had an idea, and we didn't have really a moving map that was all that great. And again, this was in 1990, oh my gosh, 98 or 99, so 20 some odd years ago. We we had some interesting technologies, but nothing nothing like we have today. So I just said, hey, Joe, the co-pilot, I said, why don't you just pick up a heading 150? Let's go out over the water and and, and let's just let's just get away from here. I and I totally forgot about our wingman. I'm like, hey man, we're going back to the base. I just probably said something a little bit more professional than that at the time. So we now we're we're out over the water. It's a couple hundred feet. Uh, we're still in the weather, by the way. And our challenge was in the winter time, and sometimes uh, even in the fall or the spring, we couldn't climb up any higher, which would be the safe place because there was just too much icing and the uh, our blade. Uh, our blade de-ice on the main rotor blades and the tail rotor blades, it wouldn't shed the ice fast enough. So it, that is a question I was going to ask. Uh, is, the, is the H-60 certified for flight into known icing? It, yeah, it is. Okay. But not, okay. I think uh, I, I haven't looked at our, our tech order in a while, but I think it's up to light or moderate icing. Okay, got it. You know, ice on an airplane, not a big deal, but when you can't shed it, kind of a big deal. And, you know, so we've got engine anti-ice, we've got stuff for the inlets, the windshields have a, um, an element inside the windshield so we can see, which is always important. So we're, we're bebopping around, we're, we're heading out over the ocean, because that's the safe place. And so now we're kind of getting our um, collective stuff in a sock to be, uh, as, you know, not that colorful, Mike, that was for you. So you guys can imagine the conversations <laughs> we're having. Our wingman, we left him. We're like, see you later, dude. We're, we're leaving. Because sometimes up in Iceland, the, the, the weather systems would roll in and they would roll out, you know, within the periods of five or ten minutes. So now we're, uh, we're just going in. But we couldn't climb because there was too much icing. So then we had this, um, we had this type of approach which was uh, back through this, um, it was back to the base through this, um, basically through a, a bay. It was called the Hofner Bay Arrival. Hofner was the name of the town in Iceland, and, and it was the Hofner Bay. And so we'd pull up certain waypoints, and then we would fly these certain waypoints at a certain ground speed, and this would bring us back to the base at you know probably 100 feet, maybe 50 feet. 
because again, we couldn't see anything up high. We couldn't climb that high because the aircraft couldn't shed the ice fast enough to for it to sound to stay aerodynamically stable. So we would slowly, you know, hop along these waypoints and then return via the base for via this Hofner Bay arrival, all at you know eighty knots, maybe between fifty and hundred feet. And and I wouldn't say that was a typical night in Iceland, but that one stands out for for a couple reasons is, you know, you never know what you're going to experience. You can have the greatest crew briefing all day long, but you never know that you're going to wind up, you know, 100 to 200 feet in the weather with a new crew and a new pilot, new co-pilot in Iceland. And, and sometimes, you know, you guys both fly, so you know that you that you sometimes fall to the level of your training versus rise to the occasion that you're put in. You know, but the, but the great thing was it, or was uh, at the time is, Sometimes you're so focused on getting that aircraft and that crew, uh, and sometimes in combat, you know, getting that that survivor, that wounded soldier, sailor, airman, or marine back to the base uh, that you're going to, or the higher level of medical care, that you just focus on the task at hand, and then you don't realize of all the things you have been through, you know, whether it's, you know, a hot combat zone or bad weather in, in a foreign country or something like that. That you just focus on, you know, the the tasks in front of you. Like we got to get the helicopter on the ground, or we gotta we gotta do the power off 180 uh, to get to get the aircraft back on the runway because our instructor pulled our pulled our engine. So there are a lot of similarities from what we did. Um, so that one kind of stands out in my mind. And we, you know, we go back and and in our culture in the Air Force was, uh, you know, we talk about it as a crew. We have some, uh, and, and one thing I like to say, and I think that's still a uh, tradition and, and a culture today is that we're polite, we're professional in the debrief, but there's no rank. And I would tell my crew, I said, hey, look, if I'm messing it up and I'm the senior officers and you guys got to tell me because that's the only way I'm going to get any better. Now, some of them were a little bit more colorful than others, and that that's fair. And some of the uh, some of the enlisted air crew members, would they would just be very blunt, which is always appreciated because um, they, you know, a lot of them were, were very, very seasoned guys uh, and gals that had seen a lot and experienced a lot. And they say, look, man, you know, here, do not do this because of X, Y, Z. And some of those, you know, gray beards, you, you would learn to listen to them as a young, uh, as a young pilot, kind of like that, that, that old instructor that's hanging around the flight school that's been there forever, <laughs> you know, um, that had carb ice in a one fifty two or something like that, that you've never experienced. I always say learn from other people's mistakes because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. That's, that's right. Yeah. And and picking people's brain, you know, when the time is right to go, Hey, so how did you deal with that? You know, and and the debrief, I think where, because the the cockpit is, is a really difficult classroom, but it's in the brief and mainly in the debrief as you're walking back after you tie it down or chalk it up or turn it over to somebody else is going, Hey, so now that we have time to reflect and pause, what do we learn? And I always would like to say, hey, if we were to do this again tomorrow, what would we do differently? Uh, so that's, that's, that, that's paid off. Now, I've, I've lost track of where, where that person went. I think they might be in command of their own unit right now. So um, maybe they share that same. Uh, we probably had some other colorful language at the time, but it's all about the learning and getting better. When you're, when you're flying um, with, with a crew like this, uh, and and, be, and I'm speaking from a point of ignorance because I don't really know how helicopter crews work. Are you typically flying with the same uh, the same crew, flight after flight, or are you kind of 
in any flight could be a different crew you're you're flying right seat and in in one flight and the, you, your left seater is going to be a different guy every time and are you sometimes moving to the left seat like what's the dynamic there from mission to mission yeah no that's a great question so there's a couple of of nuances a couple of differences usually when we deploy we will stay with a dedicated hard crew so we will you know it'll be me and another another pilot and then the core four, as I call them, the two pilots and the two special mission aviators, backenders, we will stay with them throughout the entire deployment. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You come together and you gel as a team. Sometimes we have to spread out the uh, the experience. You know, you've got an experienced pilot, but a less experienced co-pilot. You have a very experienced, uh, you know, special mission aviator or flight engineer, as I've called them in, in years past, on the right side, but a younger individual on the left-hand side. So there's there's come some of that uh, indirect mentoring as well, but in combat and in uh, exercises, we tend to tend to stay together, and you kind of form that bond uh, as that basic crew. Normal uh, when you're back in in garrison and you're back home training day to day, it sometimes depends on your crew qualification. Instructor pilot uh, that I was, you, you you fly with whoever needs the training. Uh, and I can be in the right seat or the left seat. I could be training a co-pilot. I could be training an aircraft commander, an instructor pilot. So I would I would swap between left seat and right seat. So, uh, but that crew integrity is really important. You really see, and that was kind of the fun thing of of putting teams and crews together. Uh, that um, you know, you looked at each other's the individual strengths and weaknesses, and we said, hey, we think. You know, co-pilot A would be great with aircraft commander B. Yep, put those guys together. Or, oh, man, no, that guy's an Auburn fan. That guy's an Alabama fan. Do not put them together. It's <laughs> never, never going to work. Uh, or, you know, Michigan, Penn State or whatever, or Dallas Cowboys, New York Giants or stuff like that. And then sometimes you'd put crews together just, just because they, they were funny. We, we had guys that uh, – uh, and then we'd pair them up in formation – Simply because you know you had the Auburn guy in one airplane and the Alabama guy in the other airplane, so that was that was some. And when you deploy, you kind of have to take moments like that to look for those uh, those lighter moments because it gets stressful pretty quick. Brian Schull is a retired Air Force pilot, flew uh, SR seventy ones, and wrote a great book called uh, Sled Driver, and he's a he does public speaking now, and he tells this really great story about the. Um, about some conversations. It's a pretty, pretty famous story, but he actually tells this story in person um, about air traffic control and about these slower aircraft trying to get their ground speed from the air traffic controller. But it, what, one of the interesting parts about that story is he, is he talks about the moment. He's like, at this moment is when I knew me and my backseater were a crew because this particular thing happened and they were of like mind. Like they thought exactly the same thing in that moment. He goes, <laughs> that's when I knew we were a crew. Do you have that kind of a moment when it's like, okay, now we're finally a crew? Like did you have you ever had that experience where you're like, I this is it. I know I can I can count on this guy and he's got my back and I got his back. And like, did, did that kind of thing ever happen or does it just like, yep, yeah, we just did our jobs. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, yes and no. I, I've had that moment in one of my first deployments. So after desert storm, uh, we would deploy, you know, to the middle East and, and most of the time it was, uh, you know, Kuwait 
and I remember I was a young, young officer and they put me with an experienced, you know, crusty old, uh, I'd say sage wise, um, master sergeant, you know, who had s- seen just about everything and done just about everything in a helicopter. And I remember I went to him and I was, my roommate at the time was another pilot. So we're like, dude, what are we, what are we doing? I mean, we had no idea what I mean, you know, because you, you can practice and you can read and you can talk to the guys, but we were taking a brand new, because the unit was transitioning from the age 30 to the age 60, uh, and they had never deployed it before uh, in this particular unit. So we're, we're kind of writing it as we go. I mean, we had some, we're not completely cowboys, um, you know, Wild Wild West, but we went to, the, we went to this mass sergeant who, uh, who'd been around and been in Desert Storm, the actual war war, you know, on night one doing all sorts of stuff with the special ops guys. Uh, and we said, Hey, master sergeant, so-and-so, Hey, you know, my, myself and Lieutenant X over here, uh, and I use X and Y cause I, I haven't talked to these gentlemen. I don't have permission to use their names. So that's why I'm calling them X and Y. And I said, Hey, so we're, we're kind of new at this deployment thing. So can you tell us what to do? Uh, and he goes, Lieutenant, if you just shut up and listen to me, you're going to be just fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so like a good officer, you listen to the senior NCO and he's like, okay, here's how you build this. Here's how you do this. Don't do this. When I say this, this is what I need you to do. I'm like, okay. And, and I still remember that. It was my first deployment. And, uh, you know, we, we get back and, you know, we're doing some things. And, and I said, well, hey, Master Sergeant, you got any feedback? You know, and it's always an interesting position you put somebody in as the, and granted, I was a first lieutenant, maybe a captain at the time. And you ask a senior NCO, because obviously there's that level of, you know, rank and respect. And he just is like, he goes, here's what you're doing good. He goes, you stink at this. He goes, forget about that. I'm like, all right, sounds great. But one of the best debriefs I ever had. And usually the NCOs were very, very good throughout my career of just not being rude. That's not the point. They were just on point, direct, and very purposeful with their feedback because I think for a couple of reasons, because they've seen a lot of pilots. They, they tended to fly a lot. And, and their fate was in our hands. So if we screwed up the approach or, you know, did a bad landing, a bad hover or something like that, they had to let you know, they'll let us know. But they also feel very little control because they don't have any flight controls in the back. So, <laughs> so they, they were very, uh, very vocal most of the time positive. And some of them honestly were they they had such situational awareness whenever we were doing a mission or an exercise um, and we come to and and. You know, like every organization, the the seasoned, um, uh, wise, experienced leaders rise to the top. Uh, most of them were humble, and then you'd go seek them out and go, "Hey, so I'm thinking about this and this and that. What do you think?" And he's like, "Well, sir, I think you should do it this way." I'm like, "You know, there's some there's some great perspective I hadn't even thought about." And and so multiple times on real world missions, we're like, "Hey, what do you think?" And they they would come up with something I I was blinded to. I'm like, "Whoa, I didn't even think about that." I'm like, "All right, let's do that." Uh, and that's a very empowering thing, you know, for someone, whether they're a senior NCO or even a sergeant, uh, because they, fl- they flew a lot because there's not a lot of them. And they're in the back of the aircraft. They're working with all sorts of stuff and dealing with the team, shooting the weapons, working the radios. Uh, and, and my hat's off to those guys and gals. I mean, there was some, some great young, young ladies that, uh, that, that kept pace with the men still today. And even in the pilots, I mean, there's, it's just phenomenal. It's just great. I'm imagining the scene from Forrest Gump when uh, when Forrest Gump shows up for the first time in Vietnam and he meets uh, Lieutenant Dan. 
And he's just like, I don't know what to do here. And he's just do this, do this, do this. Like that's kind of the, <laughs> that's the, the visual I have in my head when you show up at these things. Do you have, um, do you have a, a, any times when you're, it, it, what I'm, what I'm impressed with is, and any, any good officer, uh, any good commissioned officer knows that, that their job is empowered by the enlisted uh, cadre, especially the non-commissioned officers, you know, the senior uh, sergeants and uh, end up. And so were, were there times when maybe you can or cannot give an example of an, an uh, but of a situation, but like where you, those, those, those guys are depending on you to get them where they have to go and to get them out. But can you, can you think of an example where it was like they are the ones that made it possible for you to live, to, to survive? Like, like it, this sounds like a tight knit team of people and you've got your mission and it's to fly the aircraft and, and, but they've got a mission as well. Like, is there a, any kind of an example where that kind of a thing happened? You know, so one of the stories, uh, you know, back from my logbook, uh, and I, I, my last time in Afghanistan was almost ten years ago. So, but it's still, it's still very much part of, you know, the fabric of who we've become uh, as as professional aviators, and and you know, and uh, in our community, we use two two big call signs, Jolly and Pedro, uh, both historical connections and ties to uh, to Vietnam, and uh, the, the, you know, Afghanistan is replete with so many both you know, great times in our lives and bad times in our lives over four months periods. But I think, I think everyone to, to a person, man or woman who was there, I think a majority would say that, um, that they came together as a team. And this is, you know, we talk mainly about air crew, but uh, I'll give you a short shout out to the maintainers, the, the, the young kids, men and women who are, you know, they can change an engine in 12 hours without a, without a lift. I mean, I've seen it. it it's an impressive, an amazing, attribute and skill and ability and you know where it's 130 degrees you're in godforsaken parts of just in the middle of a desert there's no shelters no heat and we shell an engine and they they change it you know so you try and take care of it but now to to your point so i kind of come to it as is and i call it the, the team three four and five right so three in in most military operations three is all about operations the guys going out and the gals going out and doing doing the mission. The four is logistics or maintenance, so they got to give us the equipment to go out and do that. And then the five is the planners, so they get the mission and they plan it. So I look at this whole team. There's folks working in the operations center that receive the mission, maintenance, uh, make sure that uh, we have a, a working aircraft, and then and then the three, the ops guys and gals, the ops team, the air crew, they get to go out and and the team in the back, the pararescuemen go out to get, uh, get to go execute that mission. But now to, to your point and your question is, you know, Afghanistan, a very dusty country. Uh, and sometimes we were, we were tasked to go land at places, uh, where there was a convoy hit via an IED or, you know, a complex attack or something like that. And, and so you go back to what we talked about, that's team really gelling. And it's almost like you, you know what the person's going to do even before they do it. That's kind of the that's the the bond and the connection that these crews had, and they were flying for you know. And I, as as the commander on one of these tours, I would kind of jump in and fly with the different crews, see how everybody's doing, give people a break where I could. But you really get to see, and it's almost like 
you know, a, a good analogy is you see, uh, you know, a quarterback, Dak Prescott, connecting with uh, with Witten, number 82, if you're a Cowboys fan, or Aaron Rodgers and one of his favorite receivers, or anybody, you know, a, a sender and a receiver, and you see that connection, and they know what the other person is thinking. And when you see this, the, the pilots come together, the special mission aviators in the back of the aircraft, and then even further to the team, the pararescue team, you know, couple folks in the back, all of them coming together and really focusing on what they have to do, where they have to put the aircraft, and then what has to happen. There was a couple missions that we had where we, no kidding, had to land in a very precise place because everything around it was too rocky or there was a threat that we, we had to avoid. And in some of these places, the dust was was so fine. So imagine people ask me, you know, brownouts were one of our biggest threats, right? So Obviously, the helicopter, the, the rotor blades spin, that creates, you know, a little bit of turbulence and it kicks things up. Well, when we get to um, the dusty environment, it creates a brownout. And there's plenty of crazy videos on YouTube that folks can go find. But it's a very disor- it can be a very disorienting maneuver uh, and it requires very uh, close, almost perfect crew coordination and everyone has a cadence, and it's almost like that when the crew, you know, someone says, okay, we're starting the approach, then this the other person not flying says something else, and then it kind of goes around in a big, almost clockwise or counterclockwise cadence and, and, and programmed comments about altitude, airspeed, closure, altitude, airspeed, closure. And meanwhile, we're, we're you know, sometimes we would get shot at, so bad people trying to do things to us. And it's at night, and seeing in, in dust as the rotor blades get closer to the ground, it kicks up the dust. And I try to explain it to folks. And what it's like is um, imagine taking talcum powder, sprinkling it all around a closet, and then trying to put together, you know, some sort of mechanism where you have to be very precise. And if and if you do it incorrectly, it, it doesn't work out so well. That's about the best analogy I can come come up with. But so you get you get connected with these folks where I knew, you know, if I sit on the approach the copilot I was flying with, I know what he or she is going to say because that's the way we train. And same thing with the uh, the special mission aviators. I know what their calls would be. And I could also know, and this, these, are the, these are the really cool things. You know a team is, and a crew is coming together when you can recognize the pitch in their voice increasing based on the severity and the intensity of the maneuver we're doing, whether the dust was extra thick or heavy uh, or we were drifting left and right. And and when people would go and fly with us uh, in training uh, and observe this, the, they would say, your crew coordination and, and calm communications management, you know, so now you got four people talking, you got somebody external talking to you, everybody coming together, almost like it is it is a rehearsed, I don't want to say robotic, that's not the appropriate word, but it is a rehearsed. Dance. Yeah, it is a dedicated. And then meanwhile, you have to put this, nearly 22,000 pound aircraft on a very precise spot. And then the team, when they, when they land and, you know, we're, we're thankfully in one piece, the team has to get out, run through this dust cloud, find the survivor, find the team that has treated them, uh, do some basic first aid, get that handover of, okay, here's this pulse, you know, here's their heart rate. Here's the, here's what we've done. Here's where the, the wounds and the, uh, and the issues are all sometimes underneath, the sound of a rotor blade um, 
in a valley, and sometimes this is in a you know on a on a mountain. Sometimes it's in snow. Most of the time, it was in dust in Afghanistan, and they would have to get all that information in about thirty seconds. We'd put the patient back on the aircraft, and then we'd have to go take back off and fly through that again because. Of course, once you apply power to the helicopter, it's going to kick up all that dust again. So you're almost creating the cloud all over. So, you know, we what, what we did is we, we trained hard together. We had set procedures. We knew when things went wrong, what the what each person had to do in those roles and responsibilities. Uh, and that was the really neat thing of seeing all that come together. But that takes time. It takes training. It takes a lot of effort to uh, to get right. Yeah, it sounds like that's not something that happens by accident. And uh, like you said, cadence, that's something that you, you practice. And that's We're pretty forced. cool. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Cool. But you know, the, the cool thing is now flying in general aviation is I teach young young folks, well, young all, all folks to fly. You know, it's okay, we're on downwind, so what do we do? We're going to do our gums check, right? We're going to pull our carb heat. If you're flying the type of airplane, we're going to pull our power. It's going to be set here. We're going to do our flaps, and then we're going to make our turn. And so you go through that. And then really, you're just waiting to see when things aren't, when they're outside of that normal, that norm, now what we can do, what can we do as a team to fix it? So Tom, I wanted to ask you, um, I think maybe you have another story or, or two to tell us, but I just wanted to ask you, the Blackhawk or the Pavehawk, you're, you know, you've already told us, okay, you're flying it out of uh, Iceland, which is a very different environment than flying out of Afghanistan. Like, what was the uh, obviously the, the the manufacturer was tasked with making an all weather all all planet type of helicopter that can do anything anywhere like what was the difference in trying to fly in these different environments it sounds like you're dealing with some of the same hazards but there's got to be differences yeah you know um i, I tell you what i um i, I love flying the, and the blackhawk to me, i view the blackhawk you know the h60 there's there's so many different variants of it i i view it almost as the rotary wing c-130 right there's a ac-130 a wc they landed on skis the, the blackhawk uh is just it's it's great um and you know much like much like any any aircraft you you learn you know the pitch and the power settings there's not a lot of pitch in a helicopter but there's power settings and and i i think also that aircraft have personalities and so when i went out to fly one aircraft i I knew how to fly that one but um you know the the constant to your question david was you know the crew and the training were everyone knew what to do and how to do it and when to do it now granted there people have different capabilities but we knew what the expectation was but in uh but I, I'd say what we learned to do, and all I, I kind of divide up a, a few things, pre-9-11 and post-9-11, because as we know, everything really changed after that day. And so, you know, I started my first couple, 10 years in the, uh, in the military where we just trained and we, we did a lot of combat support going to, you know, support the you know, fly zones and stuff like that. And then, of course, 9-11, things change after that. So we became, you know, myself and some other pilots, we kind of, wanted to invest in, in what we, you know, what we could control, which was, okay, we can control how much we study and how much we know about the airframe and the engines and the avionics and the hydraulics and all that stuff. And so that stuff really translated well because the basic, basic airmanship, you know, we had those down. And then when we were put in some really dynamic, fast paced, you've got to do some amazing things with this aircraft, whether, you know, put the right main wheel on a rock and hover because that's the only place we could, we can land or, or 
or place the aircraft to put the team in and on and off uh, to get somebody off a mountainside or do a hoist to a rooftop in Katrina. I didn't go to Katrina, but I had a lot of friends that saved many, many hundreds of people in, in New Orleans uh, and in some other places. You know, it's not like you, you don't train specifically for those maneuvers, but uh, or that 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 type of disaster. But you you kind of you learn how to fly the aircraft, then you learn how to apply the mission and the tactics and the techniques and the procedures that we had, and then kind of it comes down to you know safety judgment and airmanship, kind of the you know the foundational concepts of being a, a pilot or even an air crew member, and, and you relied on your training and your crew, and then. Sometimes there was there were just places that we just said, you know, based on where the aircraft is and the weight that we're at or whatever, or the atmospherics and the environmentals, the temperature, the, you know, the icing or whatever, we just can't get there. But we would always try and challenge ourselves. But here's what we can do, you know. If we were, you know, let's say the survivor in one scenario was at 9,000 feet, but the helicopter can't get that high because it's too heavy and it won't produce enough thrust or enough lift. Well, hey, we'd ask the team. And again, these, these pararescue men are just, they're, they are amazing. I mean, they, they spend a long time making a pararescue men or PJ, you know, dating their, their lineage is all the way back to Vietnam. Uh, a couple of Medal of Honor winners uh, as well uh, in, in their history. And I encourage folks to go, to go do some more research on them. Um, and they would always have that can-do attitude. Like, hey, sir, you know, if we know that the, uh, the survivor of the crash site is at 9,000, but we can go on eight or seven or whatever, We'll hike the rest of the way. We're like, okay, I it can't get you to eight or nine, but I can get you to seven or seven five. Yep, that'd be good enough. So we would come up with some, you know, some some maneuvers and you know um, ideas of of getting the aircraft to a certain performance um, envelope and uh, and putting the aircraft where we need it to be. And I'll tell you, I, I got you know where I live. There's uh, there's a big Navy base, so they fly the Seahawk around. And there, I live on the downwind of an airport, and I still see the Seahawk and. You know, like like a fifteen year old kid, I go back out there and I look at him flying over my house, and I I just I miss flying that aircraft. And it's, and Sikorsky has just built a phenomenal, phenomenal machine. Uh, very very forgiving, very formidable aircraft. Uh, a lot of people fly them, and, uh, and it's it's just great. Uh, I can't say enough about Sikorsky and their products. I like the way you described it as the the C one thirty of the rotor wing world. So the C one thirty has got the <laughs> has the the record for being the longest production uh, aircraft in history, and for good reason because they're still making them today. Like it is still such a great airplane. Um, and I can see, like you you mentioned, the all of the different variants of the. The H sixty. There's so many variants. I think every everybody uses them, and it's just oh, a yeah. cool. Well, you know, and helicopter. you speak about the one thirty. So you know, we have this thing in, in Air Force Rescue called the Triad. You know, we got the fixed wing, which is the C one thirty. They're now flying this 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 great platform called the J model, which has got it's all glass. It's got a HUD. That that is an amazing amazing aircraft. It's got so much power, and it's you know it. And people say the only thing that's the same on that aircraft from a from a non J model is um, the only thing that's similar is the name. Everything else is different. So we've got fixed wing, rotor wing, and then the third part of the triad uh, is the is the pararescue men or the, uh, the guardian angels. That that's a it's a small team that comes together uh, that they'll put in the back of aircraft. And these are the guys that will jump out of an airplane to a sinking ship uh, to save people they don't even know or you know go into uh, 
there were some folks, I, I don't know any of them, but I think they were part of the, uh, the Thai, the boys that were captured, that they were stuck in that cave in Thailand. I think there were some Parisian. Mm. And, and some of these young men, my goodness, you look at them and it's just, it's mind boggling what they can do. Uh, and, and they don't know the word now. They're like, well, we'll find a way. We'll just figure it out. And, and, and usually, you know, I, I've worked alongside of them for many, many years. It's just, it's just amazing. So when this triad comes together, you know, it gives, it gives the Air Force the option of using, you know, a fixed wing platform, a helicopter platform. Sometimes these guys will even drive in and pick up the survivors. So it's, that's the cool thing. Uh, and they're all focused on the same thing of getting that survivor back to a higher level of care to get them back to their family. So that was, you know, that's what I, I really enjoyed about it. It sounds like there is no such thing as the Kobayashi Maru in this field. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that I saw. So, um, yeah, but it's... Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, if you get that, then if you're a listener and you get that reference, then uh, you have my respect. Um <laughs> All right, do, I, get yeah, it. I know. Do you uh, do you have any other stories you want to share with us before we turn you loose? Yeah, I'll, um, here's one. So again, another another 860 uh, story, and this one is is, is kind of a, a training event. And you know, so one thing we we like to do in the Air Force is we we train, 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 because you never know when you're going to get that call to go to go and 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 do do what you're called to do. And sometimes uh, in the rescue community, that could be, you know, going down uh, guys doing Katrina. I think some, some folks uh, recently went over to the Bahamas from the hurricane that rolled through there uh, a couple of months ago. But um, you know, one of the stories and one of the flights uh, I remember is we were in Las Vegas and again, it was a hurricane. This is back go uh, out 10 years ago. So uh, so Katrina was fresh on their minds. Again, I, uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't lucky enough to go fly in that, but, uh, you know, it was, it was Labor Day and I think it was Hurricane Iker Gustav in 2008. And, uh, y- you know, the, the country was still kind of reeling and, uh, and kind of feeling the effects of Katrina. So I remember, you know, we get the, you know, sometimes in our, in our world back in the rescue community, we would get, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't get a lot of notice. Sometimes we would, but most of the time, we'd be like, "Hey, there's an issue. You guys got to start packing. You got to go." And this was, I think it was Ike or Gustav. I can't remember which one that we went, but I remember, you know, we we got the call from our our boss. He was the group commander. Says, "Hey, there's a hurricane coming. You guys need to go from from Las Vegas, and we were going to go down to someplace in Texas. We didn't really know." So we grabbed a bunch of people together. And again, this is over a Labor Day weekend. And the interesting thing about this uh, this flight and this mission was the cool thing about the community I used to fly in is if there was a mission, boy, you'd get, you'd get everybody to volunteer. They would cancel their leave. They're like, I'll go do it. Because they always wanted to go and fly and go save somebody or have that opportunity to go save somebody. And this one in particular, I was... Uh, I was what's called a director of operations. The boss, uh, my squadron commander, he was deployed. So I was the acting person in command running the, running the squadron or trying to run the squadron. And the group commander, so the colonel calls me and says, hey, Tom, uh, there's a hurricane coming up the coast. You know, How many aircraft can you put together? So I think we put together three because most of the other folks were deployed. We got a bunch of people together, and we probably had about 24 hours notice. We're like, plan to go from Las Vegas where we were stationed to someplace in Texas. And again, this is over a holiday weekend. So we had to find people 
because uh, most people had gone, you know, out of town for the weekend. You know, they had a three or four day weekend and they wanted to go up to the mountains or go to the beach or go to California. And so we start running a recall and doing all that stuff. And we had more people than we know than we could take. And now comes the hard part of you have to tell people going, hey, thanks for coming in, but we don't need you, which is always a, an awkward but good problem to have. So we grab a bunch of folks. Um, a good friend of mine, he uh, he now flies Life Flight. I believe he's out of Missouri. He's an interesting interesting character I should probably turn you guys on to. He, uh, he's an aspiring actor. He's, he's from Brooklyn, New York. He's phenomenal, but that's for a different story. So he plans the mission. <laughs> Love him to death. He's just a great guy. So we plan the mission. And again, we have more people than we know what to do with. We are telling people, no, you can't go on this. We've got enough people. There's not enough space. Uh, so that's the good problem. But we take off and, you know, so now we're going from, uh, you know, we're going from Las Vegas. It's um, it's a Sunday on Labor Day weekend and we're going from Las Vegas. We didn't really know where we were going. We we're going to go to someplace in Texas. I think we wound up going to San Antonio. And so we thought we had an air, refuel, or air refueling platform, our C-130, but they canceled for some reason. So now we're having to basically hopscotch across the southwest United States. And again, it says Sunday. And we're trying to get there by Monday because they think the hurricane's going to hit about Wednesday time frame. We always wanted to be in place. And I come to find out that these guys had planned this. And I didn't plan the flight because uh, I was doing other stuff and making sure everything was all taken care of. You know, we're kind of emptying the unit. And I had come to find out that they had planned this flight based on the food stops. And so they had planned from Las Vegas to Prescott, Arizona because they wanted to go because there was cookies at the FBL. So what you're saying is there's an... What? Different? Is there a different way to plan the flight? Because that sounds legit to me. I know. <laughs> I love it. And I'm and I I didn't even look at. I get in and I think I was I might have been in the first aircraft, might have been in number two or number three. I'm like, all right, you lead the flight because I I am not. I you know I just wasn't focused. I'm like I got other admin stuff, and I'm like, why are we going to Prescott, Arizona, which isn't that far from Las Vegas? It's maybe a two hour flight. You know, we probably could have gone three, three and a half. And like, well, there's cookies at the FBL. I'm like. You guys know we got to be in Texas by whenever. Boom. Cookies at the FBO. There it is. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, that's it. That's what we focused on in the Air Force. No, this is a good story. And then so we pick up and then we go someplace in Texas. And again, our, our air refueling tanker, it broke. So now we're hopscotching. It's Sunday on a holiday weekend. And so we go to someplace in Texas. And I'm like, guys, what are we doing here? They're like, oh, they got really good burritos. And I'm like, <laughs> guys, this is the middle of Texas. What are we doing here? <laughs> And so we land. This is a three ship of H sixty aircraft. So we we land and we stop. And By the way, are you landing? You're you're obviously landing at civilian airports here. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. And you're not not just hovering over the restaurant. No, no, no. So we land, and and again, we're on the clock because our boss is waiting for us in Texas, and they're keeping an Air Force base open on a holiday weekend. So you know, the wing commander's worried about overtime, and we're worried about cookies and burritos. <laughs> But but the guys who plan us, I love them. They're just they're just great Americans. They you know they, they they're just I just said go plan the mission. So now we got we've got full of burritos, full of cookies. Everybody's happy. So now we're flying, and we and we're probably on our twelfth or fourteenth hour of the duty day. I don't really remember. It was well over twelve hours, uh, and we're coming down up final. And also then we turn on the it's in September of course. And all we see we turn on the landing light to to fly down the ILS. And there's nothing but bats flying all over the aircraft. So we turn off the landing light, land, 
and our our group commander, he is just because we're late by like three or four hours because we had to stop to get cookies and burritos. And burritos, but of course. The crew course. was happy, so I think it's a good trade off, fellas. And, and I'll tell you that that one stands out. And when I talk to the the guy who planned the flight, he uh, we always get a good chuckle out of that story. So <laughs> uh, to to end on a happy note, it was all about. But so the good part is. Uh, the hurricane did less damage than we thought. We wound up spending, I think, a few days um, in... Barbecue. Well, we'll get to that <laughs> on the next one. Uh, we spent a few days, I think, in the Houston area, and then we turned right around. So we were in place ready to go, but thankfully our services uh, uh, were not needed. What kind of restaurants did you hit on the way back? Uh, <laughs> that might be for the second podcast. It's probably like Thai food and barbecue. I don't right, know. Right, right. I get that. Just great Americans <laughs> doing great things. So we, we had fun on that flight. That's too that fun. That sounds like the beer run I did once. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's too fun. I, I was, there was a beer you can only get in Florida, and they, I, I had to get like five hours in an arrow for the insurance to be checked out in it. So um, my instructor and I, we flew down to, Pen- down to Panama City Beach to get this beer to bring it back for the Parrothead Club <laughs> that I was in. <laughs> so you're a Buffett fan. Oh, yeah. So, so it was when he first came out with that Land Shark Lager. You can only get it in Florida at the time. Okay. For like the first, like, I don't know, almost a year, I guess, or six months at least. But everybody in the club said they wanted somebody to drive down to get it. And I'm like, well, I could fly down. And they all looked at me like, what? I said, yeah. So I went down with a, uh, with a Piper Arrow 2 with my instructor. And we got a crew car. And we got like five cases of beer and brought it back to Chattanooga. <laughs> get out of here. That's a great cross country. Isn't that what an yeah, airplane is for? I mean, come on. <laughs> yes, this was smoking the bandit part two, the correct way. Did did you see him this summer? We did. We saw him at Oshkosh. Yeah, we, uh, oh, Buffett yeah. was at Oshkosh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He was in yeah. uh, what was it? East just East outside Troy, of I think? East. Yeah, East Troy, just outside Milwaukee, about uh, twenty minutes, half an hour outside Milwaukee. Did he come? And it was Oshkosh. It, it was a Saturday before Oshkosh. Now I, I have to confess something. You've never been. I've never been to Oshkosh. <laughs> You need to go. I know. I keep putting on the calendar every year, and there's always some lame excuse I can't go. So uh, you guys need to hold me accountable to go next year. Well, I, I, we, I will give you an out. I, and the out is this. If you go to Oshkosh once, you'll never not go again. So don't start going until you're ready to go for the rest of your life. I know. <laughs> I know. But see, those are the good – that's the healthy addiction, David, we were talking about. I agree. I agree. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I I started going in 2009. I missed it in 2010 because of scheduling and stuff. But that was Sloshkosh, so I wasn't disappointed. But I've been every year since. Wow. And and since you're in in Florida, do you do Sun and Fun as well? Oh, yeah. I'm two hours away from that. So I volunteer at Sun. In fact, Mike and I both volunteer at Sun and Fun every year. So uh, (laughs) we actually co-host the morning radio show. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, we've had fun with that. At seven in the morning. We have a lot of fun with that. Really? Okay. Well, I've got a buddy of mine in Huntsville. uh, We flew together when we were stationed in Alabama. So uh, we we keep coming up with, again, lame excuses not to go. So um, my my sister lives, uh, I have a couple of relatives that live on the east coast of Florida. So hopefully we'll get down there next year. Yeah, come on down. We'll 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 be there. I'm sure we'll be staying at uh, at our campsite. And it's the best thing to do is to camp um, somewhere on the field because either under the wing of your airplane or in the in the general camping, it's just so much fun. Um, the best stuff happens after the planes stop flying and after they close the gates because for when they just, depart. Yeah, it's it's just so much fun. Like uh, Sun and Fun and Oshkosh are my two favorite places on earth. So perfect. Cool. 
Tom, thank you so much. This has been a riot. It was awesome. Yeah, thanks, fellas. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, one of these days, I'm going to have to get up and do some do some training with you. I think it'd be fun to put you in the right seat and have yeah. you. Let's go. Have you not not let me kill you? Yeah. I'm not very good at this stuff. Oh yeah, so I have to ask you about my thing. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Go for it, Mike. So this was just something. I mean, I've I've had my ticket for years. I've had my pilot's license for a while. Um, I just haven't flown since like June, and I hadn't flown that that often before that. And I had gone from. When I was in Sheboygan on a project, I was flying low-wing Pipers, uh, Cherokees, and so I'm back in you know Tennessee, so I'm flying their high-wing 172s. So since it had been since July since I'd flown, I decided I wanted to go up with an instructor. Well, they have a new instructor, a young lady that um, has basically been flying straight for three years from her initial, and she just got her, her, her double I last week, as a matter of fact. So in three years, she's gone through her... What her everything but her multi, I think. Okay, and she's getting hours now for her uh, ATP to try to get into the uh, airlines eventually. But so she's an instructor. So I'm like, well, I'll go fly with Danielle. I had met her before. We've met before. So very seems like a very nice young lady. And we got up, and I've never had anybody since my probably my initial check ride, um, pull the power on me so many times <laughs> than she did in a one hour flight uh, on Saturday. And this was, yeah, this was literally just, what, two days ago. Okay. So we're up there, and she kind of looked back. She's like, oh, there was somebody. This is literally, we just took off with her for the first time. I've never flown with her before. And she looks back, and she's like, oh, there was somebody in the pattern. I'm like, well, I thought we said you had to to the practice area. She said, yeah, but I was going to pull the power on you. (laughs) I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Yeah. So we go out and do some stalls and some slow flight and some power on, some power off. And we come back, and she's like, well, we need three landings anyways, right? I said, yeah. Well, we did about five approaches. I think I only landed three times total, or maybe twice. But we did one landing, taxi backed, uh, took off again on runway two three. We took off. We're crosswind, and we've turned downwind, and we're barely level. And she pulls the power, and she goes, "What do you do?" Or she says, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to land." And I reached for the I reached for the throttle, and she smacked my arm. <laughs> and she's like, "No." She's like, "That's not an option." I said, "Well, I don't know." <laughs> I'm like, "What do we do?" I mean, we're at what our elevation is six hundred six ninety, I think. So we're at we turn cross at nineteen or twelve, and our pattern altitude is fifteen. So we're like basically nine, you know, eight nine hundred feet above the ground. Okay. And had just leveled out from downwind. And I am I can see that we're basically a beam to numbers on the departure end. Ooh. Yeah. That's how early this was. So, And I've never had anybody do that before. Yeah. So how would you handle it? And, well, I let her do it. <laughs> okay. So, and what type I'm of aircraft? Like, I'm sorry, Mike. You- I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry? What kind of aircraft were you guys in? It was a 172. Okay. Uh, older one, I think an M. Yep. Um. So I know best glides 80 because we had already done that, you know, find a landing field when we were out doing the, the stalls and everything and the slow flight and stuff. So, you, you know, I, I know best glides 80, trim for that, find, find your spot, circle it, land, you know. But we talked afterwards um, for a while about this. So I actually had about five different scenarios going through my head at the same time. And one of them, which is kind of hard to do when you have a, a perfectly good runway right next to you is to look at a field that's off in a distance and think I can make that when you have a runway right next to you. But I knew, and th- probably the most, the hardest thing for me anyways, because it's always 
been ingrained, you know, stay close to the airport, point your nose towards the airport, you know, towards the airport, point, you know, your nose at the numbers, yada, yada, yada. She basically said, turn away from the airport. And I said, what? Okay. <laughs> she says, that's, she's like, it's the, it's the lowest or the, the least ground track is your, what you're looking for. She said, if you were to turn towards the airport, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been able to make the runway unless you had literally done a 360, um, gone over the airport and come back around on the other side and then landed. And you didn't have enough energy to fly a pattern and do a short approach on the other end. Mm -hmm. So she came back and she actually did this. So she pulled the power at the same place and she turned away from the airport. She basically did a 270 degree turn and came back and was on essentially base for the approach end of the runway. Mm. And she made it. It was close, but she still made it. (laughs) And. Well, it sounds like your instructor's doing a great job of, you know, applying some real world scenarios because, yeah. and there's, there's all these great uh, articles now about the possible turn versus the impossible turn. And, right. uh, and, and, you know, I always teach my students, you know, when we're climbing out 400 feet, I said, Hey, so, and, and we fly near, near some pretty populated areas in a highway and there's some water and stuff like that. And I said, so, Hey, what do you, and so I just try to, so she's, I think she's building in you. It sounds like, sounds like a great instructor, by the way, that, you know, yeah. she's getting you to think because that's, you don't have that, you know, you're going to have that startle effect when it actually does happen. Hopefully it never does, but you're like, oh my God, the motor just stopped or I got carb ice or something happened or an electrical fire yeah. or something goofy. I think that's great that she's getting you to, because half the thing is thinking about things that you've never even thought about. I, that's exactly what I told her, Tom. I, I told her, I've probably flown... With, you know, check rides and, you know, for in an aircraft or for with a club or another airport or flight reviews or whatever, I've probably flown with about 10 different instructors. And I, I've never had anybody do that. And she said, you know what? Me too. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She's like, I, I had my, had one my her last instructor when she was getting ready, when she was doing her CFI, which was about four months ago, I guess, was when she got her CFI. And that's the only time she's ever had that happen to her. Wow. In the, in the three years, she's been flying pretty much consistently. Yeah. And no one else has ever done that to her. And she's, and I said, what did you do? She said, I basically did the same thing you did. <laughs> <laughs> she, she said, I just kept flying. I just kept flying straight. And the, her instructor kept asking her, what are you going to do? And she's like, I don't know. He's like, well, then we're going to die. That's <laughs> what he told her. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's being, the two of them had a very good relationship as a student and instructor, but. Um, that's exactly what Tom told her. Also, her instructor told her, we're just going to die then. So we got to figure this out, don't we? Yep. So that's what they did on the flip side. Um, when she's trying, I'm trying to process all this. Um, the one thing that I did notice, cause it's been a long time since I've had to try and learn something in an airplane like this. Um, just my mind is now working, you know, overdrive to process all this and what to do and what I would have done. You know, now, now that she has the aircraft. Yeah. It is a hard place to learn how to fly. And, um, I needed to get on the ground uh, to sit down with her. I wanted to figure out what I did, what to do. So she, we sat down with the the fake runway on the whiteboard and drew it out and drew the, you know, this is where you would have gone. This is what you wanted to do. This is what I told you to do. This is, you know, so it was a very interesting uh, lesson. Uh, Probably one of the best lessons I've had in a while. And she's probably one of the best instructors I've had in a long time since my primary instructor. So I was very impressed. And I even told the owner of the airport when he came in. He was also, uh, he's actually um, uh, a DPE. 
Okay. And he, he he used to be in the Air Force also, as a matter of fact. He used to be a, he was a, an instructor in the Air Force for F-16s, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. And he, he came in from a check ride, and I said, man, this girl Danielle does some shady stuff <laughs> when she's flying with you. <laughs> and he's like, what, did she scare you? I said, yeah. So, but no, it was it was a very much a learning experience, one that I haven't had in a long time in a plane. So, but yeah, I was just curious what you would have done if you've ever done something like that before, and how. Gosh, I mean, your my first instinct was I don't know. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I uh, no, I think it's I think it's great stuff because um, you know there, and, and I can't remember who made this uh, or who the quote is attributed to, but. You know, aviation is long moments of boredom uh, interrupted by sheer moments of terror, something along that lines. <laughs> which yes, is, that's exactly what happened. Which is true. I mean, I, I flew a cross country today, and you know, it was as long cross country for his instrument. So we flew a three point five, and we're up near Richmond, and then down towards North Carolina. And, and so, you know, I felt like I there was some carb ice or something. The engine kind of, you know, didn't didn't burp; it just kind of gurgled. And I'm like, hey, did you hear that? And he goes, no. I said, all right, so why don't you pull the car beat, et cetera. So we kind of go, go through that stuff. But uh, so it sounds like, you know, your instructors just got some great teaching techniques. Uh, and and the, that's the best thing about it is you can, you know, now that you've seen it, you're like, oh, if that happens, you have some sort of ego. At least I'm that, much, that many more seconds ahead of the emergency. Uh, and that's what I think instructors should be at least discussing, you know, and now that you've got, you know, things like Redbirds and simulators, which, you know, growing up in 30, 40 years ago, we never had. So I think that's the great thing. And I'm a big proponent of chair flying, which I'm sure your instructors probably talked to you about. Of, sure. You know, you're only going to have, I mean, a thousand feet per minute, right? If, if you're setting that pitch and that power or, or lack of power, but that pitch, you got about 45 seconds before you're going to pick the place where you're going to land, maybe even less. Or, or, or it picks it for you. Right. And, 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 and that, and that that's the beauty of aviation. I'm like, look, man, it's just an airplane. It, it does what you tell it. And if you tell it to be a cross, you know, cross controlled stall or an accelerated stall or power on power off, you put it there because you're running trim or your power wasn't set or your pitch wasn't right or whatever. But that's still, it's still challenging. And that I think is the, you know, that touches the human spirit of, you know, that we want to, we want to take this machine and, and defy gravity and go do all sorts of crazy fun things with it. Yeah. So that's that's the cool thing. That's just what gets me jazzed about flying. Yeah. It's always something different. So that's good. Well, good for your instructor. And I'm going up again next week with her. So I, I texted her afterwards and I said, you know, so I booked the plane. You know, are you are you available? She, she said, yes. So I, she said, I got you down from at 10 o'clock on Saturday. And I told her, I said, good. I hope the engine lasts all day. And she says, no, you're going to have a lot of engine problems on Saturday. I feel it. <laughs> I like her already, and I don't even know her. I know, I know. That's perfect. <laughs> no, she's a sweetheart, though. She's a very nice young lady. So I'm looking forward to flying again with her. That's great. That's that's fantastic. Well, enjoy it. Take uh, take every moment of her time and and pick her brain for all of her experience. So it sounds like you got a good one. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, But, yeah, I'm looking forward to it because I was planning a long cross-country with my wife the following weekend anyway. So uh, the, the more I can get out of her, then uh, the happier I'll be with that flight. Yeah, lots of discussion on personal minimums and ADM and SRM and all that stuff. Yep. That's that's phenomenal. And, uh, and David, tell me about your flying one more time. Um, I'm a primary student pilot haven't soloed yet so i have about 35 ish hours of logged flight time but i've got a lot of flying experience 
through just just being involved in aviation. I actually went to a four-day aerobatic school once and learned how to fly the IAC primary routine in a PITS S2B, and I've flown in you know military aircraft for doing... What's that? Go ahead, say it. Say what? Oh, you got stick time. Oh, I got stick time in a T-28, and <laughs> <laughs> you, you wanted me to say it, didn't you? He always, um, he always usually do on your own. Yeah, I, I, I just, I've had a lot of neat experiences um, from everything from a, a hot air balloon to a KC-135. You know, I got to fly in the back of a KC-135 while we re- refueled F-15s from Eglin Air Force Base as part of the Civil Air Patrol. I mean, it was just lots of different things. Um, not, a, not you know, mo- most of it obviously is not lockable, but uh, on my own, I have probably 35 hours or so of, of logged flying time. Um, just through the through the years of here and there, dabbling in it, doing this and that. But uh, and yeah, you got an awesome ride along in the B seventeen in Texas oh, Raiders. Dude, Texas Raiders took me up in their B seventeen, and I shot a video. Um, it was just so much fun, like oh. just being able to do that. I actually had a ride in Fat Albert uh, with the Blue really? Angels that I had to How'd give you get up that? because I couldn't. Well, because we're part of the media, and and I couldn't take the flight because I had something else going on. So I gave it to Mike, and he mm-hmm. actually got to take the ride. All right, so Mike, how was that ride? Well, I got well. I was in the back. I was in the cargo area, but it was awesome. <laughs> yes, it really was. I mean, it was zero G's. It was parade passes. It was, you know, um, the tactical uh, landings. And, oh yeah. It, you know the full beta reverses and everything, and uh, yeah, luckily I followed the instructions. Did not eat a big lunch. Somebody on the in the back of the plane did not read those instructions. Ouch! <laughs> so, but no, it was awesome. And actually, uh, Ben Sclair from GA News got to sit in the cockpit, so he was in the front, and he's got a great video of it of our final entry <laughs> when we came in for landing, where it's you know it looks like it's you know it's not sixty degree dive, but. Um, it wasn't quite that much, but it was there, pretty there amazing. There was no horizon on the approach. <laughs> no, no, there none. was none. All you, all you saw were two numbers, and they kept getting bigger. Oh, and that's a big airplane. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, it was an amazing opportunity, and I thank Dave every time I see him. Now. <laughs> yeah, I, it was cool. I wish I, I wish I could have done it, but it couldn't have gone to somebody better. So it was fun. Yeah. Actually, our next our next one, and and we're we're, we're kind of leaning on Mike to make this happen. Um, well, I'm leaning on. on I know you're leaning Conway, on Conway, but, <laughs> but we're hoping to get a ride on the Hurricane Hunter into an active tropical storm. Oh. Yeah, a buddy of mine from high school actually flies uh, as a, as a flight engineer. Um, really, I, that I can't imagine that they put that aircraft in a hurricane. I mean, that's just nuts. <laughs> and everybody I've talked to about that so far, I was like, oh my gosh, wouldn't, doesn't that scare you? I'm like, no. No. That's awesome. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds amazing. Like a <laughs> yes. Sign me up. And here I am giggling and laughing the whole time. Every time somebody asks me, I'm like, no, this is awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, just think of so. the confluence of power. You know, you got an airplane that's maybe 150, 140,000 pounds, depending on what they're flying at. And you got a hurricane that's just tearing everything up that's just crazy so uh you guys aiming for, to do that next year is that the plan we'll see we we did a great interview with them at oshkosh so they let us on the plane in the morning before they let anyone else on there um we did an interview with uh one, one of the pilots one of the pr guys and a few of the other uh crew in the back including todd um we were in there for about an hour and just did a great interview with them uh on the ground it was you know it was a static display but we were talking afterwards 
about, hey, why don't we, <laughs> you know, I know it's all the big media and the CNNs and the ABCs, but, uh, you know, maybe you should give the little guy a shot. And they were talking about it over dinner that night. And Todd came to our campsite the next day and said, um, we think we can get you in. So he kind of, they kind of want to see the video and that we shot and do that. The problem is, you know, life and work and everything else gets in the way. So he's slowly finishing it up and working on it, but he's, he's a great storyteller too. With when it comes to, uh, whatever video we throw at him, uh, he seems to be able to put it together pretty well. Uh, he's he did he's a great talking one. about our, my video editor guy, his name yeah. is John. So we're hoping he can put that together. Yeah. He did a great one for us years ago with Torah, Torah, Torah routine. Um, Goodness. So, but yeah, these guys, uh, hopefully with that video, that'll get us in through their PR guys. So do you guys have, you know, do you guys have a white whale that you want to try and do, or is that one of them? I, I do. Um, I, I want, I want a, so there's, there's a couple. First off, I'm just going to say, I'm I'm an F-16 guy through and through. <laughs> I got to pull nine G's in a Viper one day, but, but the white whale is... I would love for the Air Force to call me and say, we want to put you on a carrier and do a cat shot and a trap in a rhino. That wouldn't suck (laughs) at all. (laughs) I did land on a carrier once. Uh, Yeah. It was sideways. Yeah. It was... (laughs) In a 172? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) In in one of the sims, uh, the the Redbird sim simulator over at Oshkosh, they have a whole setup... Uh, called the Pilot Proficiency Center. Okay. And they have all these different scenarios, and you're actually sitting down with an instructor, and they walk through scenarios, and they, you know, work with you on stuff. And that was one of the things uh, she did say, let's see if you can land on a boat. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> she said, yeah. And here I am on long final for a uh, for, for an aircraft carrier on a, in a 172. <laughs> so it was interesting. <laughs> That's That's, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. But my, let's see, my, I don't know. I think I've, I'm from South Florida. I've always been a big Keys fan and a Buffett fan. So I don't know, taking an albatross and landing it on a crystal blue, you know, turquoise blue ocean somewhere next to an island, pulling up to a beach and putting a hammock out underneath the wing and crashing for an afternoon sounds like uh, what I want to do. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. You're yeah, not wrong. That, yeah. yeah, taking the Hemisphere Dancer, right? That, I think that was one, yeah, of, exactly. one of Buffett's, uh, I don't know if it was an albatross or a goose, but yeah. Yep. Well, that's that's okay. fantastic. My, Mike has chosen wisely. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked seaplanes. That was one of the first small airplanes I was ever on when I didn't realize I liked airplanes. Um I went on a fishing trip when I was like 14 in Alaska, and we got to fly uh, the Haviland uh, Beaver uh, f- with straight floats to our lodge that we camped at. Oh, man. And I have never really worried about, you know, flying or airplanes or anything like that before. And that one was uh, epic. Now, it's, it <laughs> sounds like, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, not sure, you know, if you guys remember this, but I remember there was a TV show. This is, wow, probably back in the mid-'80s called Tales of the Gold Monkey and it was uh there was there was basically a Grumman Goose and they were based in this in the South Pacific and I think it was about a pilot and and I don't know if he ran a charter but I don't know if you can find it on you know Netflix or Amazon Prime but I remember watching that and then I'm gonna try and look for that now yeah a guy named oh I don't remember the guy but you know he was like the Indiana Jones of pilots um but I remember watching oh. that you know when I was you know in high school going that sounds like fun I'd like to go do something like that yeah. About the time I started listening to Buffett was, you know, when I got out of got out of high school and into college. So <laughs> it's funny. We have a uh, 
you know, I do IT stuff, computer stuff, basically. And a good friend of ours, uh, Mike Harris, who lives up here in Nashville, he has a uh, his own podcast called Why We Fly. And uh, he interviewed a guy that he knows um, who at like, I think, 38, I think he was. Um, so around that age where he was in stuck in computers his whole life and wanted to change. And he had a pilot's license and he just got some extra ratings. And he now flies float planes caravans on floats down in the islands gosh i mean i listened to that episode and i was just like there you go he hung up a 25 year it career (laughs) yeah that's phenomenal and so now he's a full-up pilot oh yeah and he flies uh commercial for uh he flies seaplanes out of the caribbean and then he flies part of the year and then he goes up to alaska and flies yeah that was yeah actually i did when i saw mike last week he said he's on his way up there or just getting getting back getting back from oh heading up to alaska i think Dion Mittens his name. Dion, that's it. That sounds like an awesome. That sounds like a great guy for maybe the next episode of Logbook Memories. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna have to well, have him on for sure. Yeah, eventually, eventually. I know he already did one with uh, Mike, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a it was a neat thing to hear that episode. Being in IT for thirty years plus, it feels like fantastic. Well, cool. Tom, thank you so much for taking some time here to talk to us on Logbook Memories. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you uh, taking some time away from your family to do this. But, yeah, cool stories, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Especially on this Veterans Day. Thank you for everything. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Glad we got the uh, – and that, that cast app, that, that is just fascinating. It sounds like literally we're standing right next to each other. So, um, you know, again, uh-huh. thanks for the opportunity. And, and hopefully our, our paths will cross soon. And good luck with the flying out there. Yeah, definitely want to uh, keep in touch, and let's uh, let's see if we can connect. We'll we'll be at Oshkosh. We'll be at Sun and Fun in April, and Oshkosh in July. So, and uh, probably some other aviation events too. So, if you make it down to Florida, if you're in Space Coast area, Central Florida, uh, I'm buying the beer. So come on by. <laughs> you're welcome to come visit with us. If you come down to the Mouse's house, I will. Yeah, well, you too, man. Get uh, your cross you, country you know on. Come welcome. on. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and like Mike says, I just want to echo, uh, you know, I'm using, I'm using you as a proxy for, for all veterans. We're recording this on Veterans Day 2019. So thank you for your service and thank um, your family and, and the same for all of those who serve and uh, defend our freedoms. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk, talk about uh, a great mission and some great airmen doing great things out there. So thanks again. Awesome. You've been listening to Logbook Memories. That was Tom Dorrell, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired, telling us about some of his adventures in helicopters. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Laters. See you. Thanks so much for listening to Logbook Memories. If you'd like to share a memory from your logbook, drop us an email to stories at logbookmemories.com. That's stories at logbookmemories.com. And since we are just starting out, it would mean the world to us if you left a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you really want to help us out, maybe write a short review telling the world how awesome we are. Don't forget to share us with your friends. We'll catch you on the next episode of Logbook Memories.